Amen. Well, good morning. Nice to see all of you. I uh, would love to have a Bible in your lap if you don't have one. So raise your hand high. We'll get you a Bible. And when you get your Bible, please join me in John chapter 12. If you're visiting this morning, we're very glad to have you join us. Good to see my church family. Hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Again, have that hand high if you'd like to borrow or keep a Bible. Well, we are moving forward together in the Gospel of John. We're continuing to follow Jesus together in this Gospel. And this morning in John chapter 12, we are entering a unique location in the gospel, and I'll explain more on that in a moment. What I want to do, our attention this morning is on the first eight verses of John 12. I'm going to read all of those verses, pray, and then we'll look to God in his word. So join me, John 12, beginning in verse 1. Scripture reads, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word made flesh. And we thank you, Father and Son, for pouring out your spirit upon your people. And Holy Spirit, that you make the word of God known and desirable in our hearts. And so we pray this morning that as we, as we look to you, Lord, in your word, as we hear your verbal presence speak to us, we pray that we would see Jesus and appreciate Jesus and believe the good news of the Lord and that we would build the whole of our lives around the Savior. And we need your spirit, Lord, to accomplish that in us. And not just us individually, but we as a church body to be the light on this hill that you've placed us. And so, Lord, we pray then that you would have your way with us, that our joy would be found in you, that you would satisfy our souls with your love this morning, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. This may not be a question that you, you think of very often, 
But here it is. What is Jesus worth to you? It's a bit of a strange question, but it's true that what you prize, you praise. What you prize, you praise, and what you praise, you live for. So when you prize something and you value it, you will begin to orient your life and every aspect of your life to dedicate and live for that thing. Again, the question is, what is Jesus worth to you? The question, what is Jesus worth to you, is on display in these first eight verses here in John chapter 12. Well, we need to pause for a moment to think about where we are in this scene. If you, if you look in your Bibles and you put a finger, say, at John 11, verse 45, and if you need to, you turn a page and you look all the way to the end of John chapter 12, this section of Scripture is like a closing montage of scenes on the last, the season finale of a TV show. It's a closing montage of scenes. There's seven different scenes. They happen really fast. But it's like the end of a season that reflects back on what we've seen in this TV show, so to speak. But it also foreshadows what's to come. This section right here in the Gospel of John, it's now taken us 33 weeks to get here. This is the literary halfway point of this Gospel. And whereas John 1 through 12... The first 12 chapters span about three to three and a half years. The next five chapters span a few hours. So the way that John has selected specific material to convey about Jesus in this gospel account, it was three and a half years or so for the first 12 chapters and then two or three hours the next five. So he's changing speeds big time. And then after that, the remaining four chapters, 11, are around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. What we see here, 1145 to the end of 12, is the close of Jesus's public ministry. And so they all fit together, these seven scenes, and need to be taken as a whole, but for our purposes and for time's sake, we're going to continue to take it in chunks. So if you're taking notes, the subtitle this morning is the closing of Jesus's public ministry, part one. And Lord willing, we'll be there again next week together. And so our time is focusing on these first eight verses, although we will take a glance back at the end of John 11 and a glance forward for the sake of context. So if you're taking notes, the outline comes to us in four parts. Here they are. Number one, we're going to look at the literary setting of this Bethany dinner. That's the first two verses. And then we'll move to verse 3, and we'll see Mary's anointing of Jesus. Then we'll look at verses 4 through 6, and we'll see Judas's scorn and false piety. And then we'll close our time with Jesus's surprise response in verses 7 and 8. So we have, we have a smaller text this morning than what we normally work with, so this is enjoyable to really focus in on the scriptures. So if you would, look again at the first two verses, point number one, the literary setting of the Bethany dinner. We need to understand the biblical context of what's taking place right here as we see Mary anoint Jesus' feet. Beginning in verse one. 
Scripture says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom, in case you'd forgotten from just a few verses earlier, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, when you look at these first two verses, when John pauses and he sets up a scene by giving you timestamps, John loves speaking of numbers and John loves giving timestamps and he's, he's orienting around a certain feast that's coming forward, that causes us to pause and to pay attention. And there's connections. So in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. That therefore connects us to the remaining or the previous passage in John 11. So if you would, for the sake of context, look at 11.45, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter as we see the close of the response. Now remember John 11. We spent four weeks there. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus came to the tomb. He called forth Lazarus from the dead and performed this amazing sixth sign, this miracle, to testify that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. But what was the response of the people? And here is what's important to understand this feast. Look at 1145. In response to Lazarus coming out of the tomb, 1145 reads, Many of the Jews, therefore, <clears throat> who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in Jesus. But look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? <clears throat> For this man performs many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He, verse 51, did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And if you pause here, this literary setting, remember I said it's like a montage of scenes. The conclusion 
of these 11 chapters of Jesus's ministry in this high point, I mean, it was one thing for Jesus to walk on the water. It was one thing for Jesus to uh, feed the 5,000. It was one thing for Jesus to uh, make an invalid whole and walk and leap in joy. But it's another thing for Jesus to raise the dead. And so we see that many believed in Jesus, but even people there who saw Lazarus come out of the tomb went straight to the Pharisees to tell them, and what was their response? Not belief, but a plot, a plot to kill Jesus. <clears throat> they wanted to extinguish the life of Jesus, to extinguish his light because he rose a man from the dead. And their concern was political. They thought the Romans would come and destroy them. It didn't cross their mind to think, well, if this guy can raise the dead, he can probably maybe defeat the Romans. They didn't think that. They began to plot. But we saw in those final verses, 56 and 57, that there's this montage of camera cuts, right? The camera is, is cutting to different conversations in the temple and in these different places where people are whispering to each other because they're afraid of the religious leaders. They don't want to get excommunicated, so to speak, from the synagogue, from Israel. So they're saying to each other, do you think Jesus is going to come to the Passover? That's the rumor that's whispered all around. And that reality, the Passover's coming, the Jews are going to seek to kill Jesus, makes this setting in this Bethany dinner shine all the brighter. But there's one more piece of context. Skip forward, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. <clears throat> this is after the dinner. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Lazarus was... Or, excuse me, Jesus was there at the Bethany house. They came not only on account of Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews <clears throat> were going away and believing in Jesus. So you have this literary framing. Here's this dinner. Jesus is reclining at table with Lazarus. Martha is serving. Mary is kneeling before Jesus and anointing his feet with oil and wiping his feet with her hair. Judas is looking on in anger. And on both sides of this story is the reality that these religious leaders and a number of the Jews want to kill Jesus for raising the dead. And they want to murder Lazarus because Lazarus came out of the dead. And apparently it didn't occur to them that if Jesus rose Lazarus once, he might be able to rise Lazarus twice. Or perhaps the sweet irony is that we know as these readers of what's going, on, what's going to happen is they don't understand what's taking place, but we know that even Jesus will raise himself from the dead. So, so this is the setting of this feast. This is, this is the scene that we have on the eve of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry. That's the next major text, Lord willing. Verse 12, we'll get to next time together, is this is the dinner taking place before the triumphal entry when all the people gather before the gates of Jerusalem, break uh, palm fronds off palm trees, wave them in the air, put cloaks on the ground, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt, 
on a donkey, and they worship him as the Davidic king. And all of this animosity against Jesus reminds us of what John told us in the very first words of this gospel. Do you remember verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1? Why is this happening? Why do people want to kill the man who can raise people from the dead? What tells us in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines, this is verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not extinguished or overcome the light. Down in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. So this middle point, this hinge point of this gospel account, why do we see these irrational animosity, this crazy perspective of wanting to kill Jesus? It's because the darkness hates the light. And the darkness does not want to come to the light lest its deeds are exposed, John chapter 3. So the darkness of the rejection texts before and after this moment of this Bethany dinner highlights the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Timestamp. Six days before Passover likely places this, as I've already said, on a Saturday night, the eve of Palm Sunday, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry in verse 12. It's subtle, but there's an amazing link here in the middle of the Gospel of John to the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now, you may not be able to remember very clearly 33 weeks back, but early in this, we saw that John, as he writes this Gospel account, takes pains to frame the Gospel of John as the new book of Genesis, a new creation account. John chapter 1 And the beginning of John chapter 2 is six days. Jesus says the word made flesh, and John recounts six days that culminate in a wedding feast. A wedding feast, a wedding dinner in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2 verse 1. In John's counting of Jesus' ministry, the wedding in Cana, in the beginning of the gospel, took place on the sixth day, mirroring or echoing the wedding of Adam and Eve on the sixth day when they were created. Now in the middle of the gospel, we're given another six-day account, another six-day timestamp that looks forward to a feast, the Passover feast that's coming, this time in honor of Jesus. And so we have these two feasts, two meals, two dinners, and we know from all of Scripture that Jesus going to the Passover was kind of like a marriage feast, in which he went to go to die to give his bride life. The occasion of this meal is to honor Jesus because he rose Lazarus from the dead. And it points to the Passover. John wants you to know Passover is coming. 
We were told in John 1, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And now we're reminded the Passover is coming when the Lamb dies for the people. The people are covered in the Lamb's blood, so the angel of death might pass over them. So this supper connects back to the beginning of John and points forward to the end of the Gospel of John. John is a beautiful literary arrangement of the true story of the world. And this leads us then to the second point, number two. We've set the scene. Now let's look at what takes place. Mary's anointing of Jesus. What happens at this feast? Look at verse three. Mary, therefore, took a pound. It's a liquid measurement. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, think perfume, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Not a chapter before, do you remember what we saw Mary doing just a few verses previous? Not a chapter before in verse 32 of John 11, we saw Mary fallen at Jesus' feet one more time. But Mary had fallen at Jesus' feet in chapter 11, weeping because Jesus had not come in response to her and her sister Martha's letter asking Jesus to come heal Lazarus. So one chapter before, Mary has fallen at Jesus' feet, weeping in pain and sorrow because Jesus did not come through. Jesus did not come heal Lazarus. And now this side of Lazarus' empty tomb, Mary is once again kneeling at Jesus' feet. And I presume that she does have tears in her eyes, but not tears of sorrow and confusion, perhaps tears of joy and wonder as she anoints Jesus with oil and wipes the feet of Christ with her hair. The perfume, we're told, was a large amount, about 12 liquid ounces. And given the high quality, one drop would have been enough to suffice to anoint and perfume the feet of Christ. And we also find out in verse 5, if we peek ahead, that Judas lets us know how much this perfume was worth. He says 300 denarii, which is roughly a year's wages. So in modern terms, 50000 60000 $70,000, depending upon where you live. 12 ounces, that's an expensive perfume. A year's wages, a large amount, and it says also they were reclining at table. So, so we here, we're coming off the coming off of Thanksgiving where we sit in chairs at a table and look at each other. But remember, in this ancient time, to recline at table was the table was, was on the ground and there would have been pillows and rugs laid out and they would have been reclining on their left side, laying on their sides to free up their right hand to eat the meal closely laid out by each other in an intimate friendship setting. So if Jesus' feet would have been extended away from the table, so he's not in a chair with Mary under the table doing this to his feet. Mary is extended away from him, but they all could have, would have seen nonetheless. She was, it was an open display. They're reclining at table. 
What is going on here? Yes, it's expensive, a year's wages. Yes, it's a huge amount of oil. Yes, it is strange, an uncommon event. What is going on here? Well, you pull back and biblically, we do see people who get anointed with oil, with high quality perfumed oil, but the only people who get anointed with oil in the Bible, it's a sacred rite for kings and priests. And symbolically in the Bible, when this, this oil was poured on their heads and dripped down their ears and their robes and down their bodies, it was symbolic of God's Holy Spirit coming upon them to anoint them, to empower them to fulfill an office, to fulfill a task, a God-ordained, God-empowered task on behalf of the people. So Mary's act, on the one hand, echoes this biblical reality. It's as if she's taking upon herself this act of worship. And by anointing Jesus, she is truly showing who Jesus is. What the worth of Jesus is to Mary. She is showing that Jesus is the true king. Not just the king of Israel. That Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of all lords, all kings, all lords, all presidents, all prime ministers, all queens, all royalty will bow down with all humanity at the feet of King Jesus. She's showing that Jesus is the true high priest who alone can mediate between you and God. There is no one and nothing else, not even yourself, that can make right what you've made wrong in your relationship between you and God. Only Jesus can. That's what makes him the high priest. He can mediate. And as the high priest, Jesus alone can offer the only sacrifice to atone for your sins, namely himself. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sins. And so Mary, in this innocent, worshipful act, is signaling across Scripture that Jesus is both the true king and true priest that we all need. So so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, understand that this beautiful act of Mary points to the reality And if we do know Jesus, reminds us of the truth that there is no other ruler that we bow down before. There is no other priest who can make you right with God. That's Jesus. And yet, Mary does this, but Mary is not authorized to do this. She does not have the authority from the Mosaic law to perform this ceremony So again, what's going on here? So on the one hand, it's symbolic. It points to a reality. But she's not making Jesus the king. She's not making him the high priest because she doesn't have the authority to do so. What's going on here? This moment of pure devotion says as much about Jesus as it says about Mary. Yes, he's the king. And yes, he is the prophet and priest. But this moment reveals Mary's relationship to Christ and Christ's worth to Mary. That's why I asked you at the beginning, what is Jesus 
worth to you. The extravagance of this moment, a year's wages that this impoverished woman gives to Jesus, the self-abandon of this moment showcases Mary's heart devoted to Christ. She even presents herself from a different perspective as a slave performing a menial task of washing the feet. When, when the, when if, a, <clears throat> if a household had slaves and a person came in, that was the slave's duty to wash the feet. And here Jesus is, or excuse me, Mary is washing Jesus' feet, but not with water because water is not valuable enough. Instead, Mary is washing Christ's feet like a slave with this perfume. Mary is displaying physically this act to show the reality of her heart. The value of Jesus, the value of who the Lord is, exceeds the greatest possessions that she has. You can almost picture her looking around the house, going into her room, and, and, and what is the most important thing that she has? And, and scholars think that this is probably an heirloom that's been passed on to her because it's so valuable. And she looks around and she finds the most important thing that she has and she literally lays it at Jesus' feet to show how thankful she is for her Lord. How much she loves her Lord. How much she is devoted to her King. How much gratitude and thankfulness is in her hearts for this man, God in the flesh, who would come down to save her and to save her brother. You know, it reminds me of King David. Do you remember 2 Samuel 6? Do you, do you remember what, G, what David did when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem? The, the scene is that the ark has been captured by the evil Philistines. The people have won it back. And eventually King David wants to bring the ark. It was the the footstool of God's presence. Ten commandments in it and more. To bring the ark back to its rightful place into Jerusalem. And David is leading the procession, the parade of people who've come out with tambourines and singing and instruments and dancing. And David leads the procession, the king of Israel. He's dancing and he's singing as they lead the ark of God back into Jerusalem. And his wife looks from the window and despises her husband. She looks from the window and disrespects her husband because she thinks the way that David acts, the way that David sings, the way that David worships the Lord, the way that David dances before the Lord, she thinks that he's acting in a way that's not befitting of a king, a way that's befitting of a vulgar fool. And so when David comes home and she makes a snide comment to him, here's David's response. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 22, he says to her, and this is, I like how the new King James captures it. David says to his wife in response to how she judged his, un, his abandoned worship to God, David says, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. <clears throat> You see, a person 
who sees God for who God truly is and then sees themselves for who they truly are and then sees the lavish, extravagant grace that God pours out through the blood of his son for our sins. It's a person like that who says, I will worship with reckless abandon before the Lord. I will be even more undignified than this because David's heart and Mary's heart and the heart of all the saints is that we will humble ourselves in our own sight as we worship the Lord. David lived, David breathed, David acted, David performed before an audience of one. He didn't lift his hands to put on a show for the crowd. He wasn't putting on a performance for people. He was performing worship, so to speak, for the Lord. David was not concerned with what others thought. He led others in the worship of the Lord. He didn't care if people judged him for raising his hands or dancing or singing because he wanted to humble himself. It's amazing. David says, I'll be more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. Part of David's worship of the Lord was an act of self-humility in exalting the Lord. And so was Mary. Mary was concerned about humbling herself Kind of what John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he must increase. The heart of a worshiper, someone who's believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that he, that God has come to live for you, to die for you and rise for you, it's not a free ticket to go and just live your life as you want. It's a free ticket to be a slave of Christ. And in being a slave of Christ, to humble yourselves in adoration. For Mary, that the price of the oil the amount contained in this bottle, the kneeling before Jesus at dinner in front of others that she didn't care what they thought, what looked like her debasing herself before Jesus by wiping his feet with her hair was nothing less than a heart thankfully riveted by the grace of God in Christ. How about you? What is Jesus worth to you? An occasional Sunday morning, if you feel like it, if it fits your schedule, if you have, don't have something more interesting to do. What is Jesus worth to you? An occasional morning given to him, an occasional, uh, perhaps listening to one song of worship on a Thursday morning. You see, what I see Scripture doing for us in David and in Mary and in all the saints that have proceeded for us is to show that the worth of Christ is of far greater value than we can possibly imagine. You see, the worth of Jesus is nothing less than a whole cross-bearing life devoted to and built around Jesus and his call and commands over your life. If you claim to be devoted to Jesus, 
but don't know what Jesus wants from your life because you don't care what he has said in his word or don't gather with his saints in obedience to his command. If, if your affections are not first and foremost for the Savior, you might be fooling yourself. And so the gift of Mary, the gift of David, is to remind us of how valuable, beyond all value, our God is. You know, there's an irony. There's parallel passages to this moment in the other gospel accounts. And in Luke 7, uh, what's likely a uh, parallel passage, Jesus is, is... having a conversation with somebody else who's not a believer in the room and who's a self-righteous person. And, and if and Mary's cleaning his washing, or rather anointing Jesus' feet, Jesus remarks, he who is forgiven little loves little. And so the corollary is he who is forgiven much or she is loves much. But when Jesus says that, here's the irony about He's forgiven little, loves little. There's no such thing as somebody who's been forgiven little. Even what we think is the smallest and most hidden of sins is still worthy of all hell forever. And even the smallest and most hidden of sins were you to never sin again still would require Christ to go to his cross on your behalf to atone for your sins, to rescue from eternal, physical, conscious torment in hell. If you think that you've only been forgiven little, that means that you don't know the magnitude of your own sin against a holy God and what Jesus' forgiveness is, nor what he has done for you by climbing onto the cross by taking the curse of creation and the thorn of crowns onto his head and bleeding on your behalf to atone for sin. And a person who believes that good news, that someone has worked so in your place that you don't have to work, when you believe that, that does nothing less than capture our hearts to say, my life is now yours, Lord Jesus, because of what you've done. David revealed it in the Old Testament. Mary revealed it. Here, what is Jesus worth to you? The point, I believe, is to recognize that, like Mary, friends, you have been forgiven much. You have. And our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is worthy of much love because you have been forgiven much. Sometimes, uh, when I have <clears throat> asked people their testimonies, heard friends' testimonies, you, you, there's this idea that those of you who've been raised in Christian homes and have really followed Jesus to the best of the Spirit's enablement in your life from an early age, that you really don't have a testimony because you don't have the rock star testimony of sex, drugs, and rock and roll like someone who gets saved later in life. And you begin to think, well, I don't really have a testimony because this person did all of those things and I, and I haven't. And then you begin to think that maybe I'm one of those people who has been forgiven little and therefore I love Christ little. Friends, that's false thinking. 
One, because we think that the rock star sins are the big ones, but selfishness, white lies, self-righteousness, not so bad. Those are what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins, which there's no such thing. I love that he named his book that. The idea, my dear friends, is that if you have a testimony that's not a rock star testimony, you have still been forgiven much. And don't be ashamed, <coughs> excuse me, of Christ's unceasing grace in your life to gift you with a godly family and save you from an early age and rescue you from stupid sins that we commit so that you have a beautiful testimony. Praise God, praise God, that you don't have a testimony like that. But you have been forgiven much. And so like Mary, you can also bow down at Christ's feet to worship. Mary's example is a wonderful call to examine your heart, to recall what Jesus has rescued you from and rescued you and redeemed you to the glories of a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new glorified bodies, and more. And the ever-present indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit and more. And it's Mary's modeling in verse 3 that sets up the extreme contrast with Judas in verses 4 and 6. Point number 3, Judas's scorn and false piety. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> but Judas, but Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So in case we miss what is going on here, John the Apostle steps in in verse 6 and explains what's going on. You see, what Judas said was reasonable. On the face of it, Judas was reasonable. It was pious. It even had a precedent in other parts of Scripture, giving alms to the poor, helping out the poor. In effect, Judas was saying, what a waste of money. Don't you know how much good we could have done for others with $60,000? so to speak. In a sense, he was right. One year's wages wrapped up in a bottle of perfume of all things, which for many would think, well, that's too extravagant to own in the, in the first place. It's the kind of thing that you might hide when other Christians came over because they come in your house and they would judge you for having something like that. And so here, it would seem too extravagant and too wasteful he has biblical texts he can point to to say that, you know what, it would have been a better decision for us to sell this and do a lot of good gospel good. <clears throat> and then to break it in a single moment, likely pouring it all out for feet. But, 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 John pulls back the curtain. Judas was a thief. He held Jesus' money bag and, quote, used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas's calculus was not how much good they could have done, but what was lost from his own pocket. He cloaked his sin in religious garb and false piety. What he said was, 
um, looked and sounded right. He had verses he could quote, but he was, by definition, a hypocrite. He wore a mask on the outside to look like one thing, but in reality, on the inside, he was the opposite. He was a Christian, as it were, on the outside, and devil on the inside. And what Judas does is he's rebuking Mary. He's rebuking her for her costly and wasteful worship. And implicitly, he's rebuking Jesus for allowing it. Judas was with Jesus like a parasite. Only so he could take from what Jesus gave. The bitter irony is that Judas didn't realize that Jesus would have freely given him the thing that he needed most, forgiveness of sins. But Judas wasn't interested in that. He wanted the cash bags. Think about it. Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. Judas saw all of Jesus' miracles. Judas was in the boat when he saw Judas, Jesus rather, walking to him on the water. Judas heard it all, he saw it all, and his heart remained dead when Lazarus's heart was made alive and came out of the grave. Seeing is not believing. Lazarus wore the jersey, but he wasn't on the team. The warning then, the warning with Lazarus, is that we can fool ourselves by never examining our hearts to know whether we are in the faith or not. By never observing the warning signs in our own hearts, we can play at Christianity and you not be Christian because we don't, deep down, truly care about Christ. We get the sense that Judas simply went through the motions and had no concern for the state of his own heart and the state of his relationship with Jesus. Judas wasn't bothered that he was stealing from Jesus. He had self-justifications for what he did. And this leads to our last point as we look at these two contrasted. Point number four, Jesus' surprise response. Verses seven and eight. Look at verse seven, please. What's interesting is in this text, Jesus has always been uh, the main character all through this gospel. But here, it's almost as if he's a bystander in these eight verses. The camera focuses on Mary. The camera focuses on Jesus. And now, finally, we hear Jesus speak as we're concluding the matter. Verse 7, Jesus tells Lazarus, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here Jesus steps up to Mary's defense against Judas, and Jesus rebukes Judas's rebuke. Jesus highlights the moral goodness of Mary's actions. There will always be a time to serve the poor, which Jesus wants us to do. But the shock of this passage is the sudden shift of attention that Jesus brings from the wonder of Mary's worship to the sinister leechiness of Judas 
to now Jesus' prophetic explanation of what Mary was doing. And I don't think Mary knew fully what she was doing. Jesus says that she was anointing him for the day of his burial. Given the gospel of John and given the confusion of Jesus' death, I don't think Mary knew what she was doing when she was anointing. I think she was just worshiping him. But there was a prophetic reality to the anointing of Jesus' feet. He was going to be buried. And Jesus was going to be buried because Jesus was going to die a brutal, horrific death because of your sins and because of my sins. And so Jesus makes clear she was preparing his body not for enthronement on a palace. She was, she was preparing his body for enthronement on a cross and then burial. And the last words that we heard Jesus speak prior to these few words he speaks here was back in 1144. Remember what Jesus said at the end of 11? The last thing we've heard Jesus say is this, unbind him and let him go, referring to Lazarus coming out of the grave. And now in a twist, this moment with Mary points to Jesus replacing Lazarus in the tomb. And whereas Jesus had commanded Lazarus to be unbound from his grave cloths, Mary didn't know it, but she was preparing Jesus to put on grave cloths and go into the tomb. And Mary, as she worshiped, didn't realize yet that Jesus' greatest act, worthy of all of her adoration and yours, was less than six days away when he would go to the cross and die for his people. When Jesus would take our sins upon himself, suffer and die. And so we have two responses. We have Mary and we have Judas. We have Mary and Judas who don't know the best part of the gospel is yet to come and the worst part of the gospel is yet to come. Namely, that God in the flesh would die in our place, the best and worst, because of our sin. We have two hearts on display. Mary's heart was Christ-seeking. Judas's heart was self-seeking. And so we also have two competing values. What is Jesus worth to you? You see, for Mary, the value of the perfume Rather, the value of the perfume for, G for Judas was market value. It was economic. He wanted the market price to get some cash to steal. But the value of the perfume for Mary was less about its market price and more about the value of the one to whom she gave it. The value of the perfume that she gave to Jesus' feet showed the value of Jesus, who ought to be central concern of our hearts. For a heart devoted in gratitude to Jesus, this was the best way Mary could think of to use what was most valuable in her possession. Most valuable in her life. To give it to Jesus, because Jesus was most valuable. Mary is a model of self-abandon and worship and thankfulness, but Judah serves as a model of self-deception and in using the things of Christ for personal gain. For Judas... Jesus and the things of Judas was an add-on to his life. For Mary, Jesus was her life. And so how about you? Is Jesus 
an add-on to your life? Or is he as the sum and substance of your life? If you cannot say that Jesus is the sum and substance of your life as you wrestle against sin and sometimes give in to sin and sometimes um, fall down and have to get picked up, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, Jesus is the sum and substance of your life, friend, then you, like Mary, give your life to Christ. But if Jesus is an add-on, someone that you only return to when you sin a sin and ask for some forgiveness, then go back out and sin your sins and there's no change in your life, friend, my concern for you is that you might be like Judas. And in being like Judas, you might be self-deceived. Church, this side of the cross, an empty tomb, how much more do we have fuel for worship and gratitude in our risen and reigning Savior? Mary heard and saw Jesus' teachings and miracles, but she didn't know. She, was, she didn't know the cross was six days away. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, looking back at the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ across all tongues, tribes, and nations, and even in our own lives, how much more do we have reason to give ourselves to Christ? Jesus is the king. Jesus is reigning right now. Jesus' gospel plan is unfolding across the globe, across the ages. Jesus' blood has cleansed us from all sin. We have been forgiven much. What can we do but love much in return? Amen? Lord, we pray that we would, by your grace, both remember what it is that you have saved us from, what you have saved us to, but most importantly, the Savior. Father, Son, and Spirit, what you have done to bring us from death to life, that we can now savor the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we can, like Mary, give ourselves to you in acts of worship, not just one moment, but all of our moments. Lord, would you well up that gratitude and wonder in our own hearts at the salvation that you give to us in Christ. And if there's any here, Lord, who don't know you, that you would bring them from darkness to light, grant them repentance to see and savor the Savior and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Friends, please stand for this song, and I'll come back up.